Welcome to Sustainability Bridges, a Eurosif podcast that aims to build bridges between policymakers, investors, academics, and civil society around the theme of sustainable investment. Eurosif, the European Sustainable Investment Forum, is the leading pan-European association promoting sustainable finance and investment at the European level. In these podcasts, Eurosif's executive director invites distinguished guests for a 30-minute conversation on current events shaping the sustainable investment community. Hello, everyone. My name is Alexandra Palinska, and I am the executive director of Eurosif. For this episode of Sustainability Bridges, I am honored to be joined by Nora Sandel, head of sustainability at Datia, a climate fintech company helping investors transition to sustainable finance, serving asset managers, asset owners, wealth advisors, and tech pro platforms with a client base of over 200 billion plus euro in assets under management. Together, we're going to discuss the concepts introduced by the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation and the challenges market participants face when implementing them. We will also discuss the technical clarifications to SFDR that are expected to be published by ESMA in the coming months, as well as the future review of the framework by the European Commission. Finally, we'll touch upon the opportunities regarding the implementation of the EU taxonomy regulation and overall regarding disclosure and availability of ESG data. Dear Nora, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Could you start off by reminding our listeners about Datia and how you help companies with SFDR implementation? Absolutely, Um, of course. So we are, as you mentioned, a climate fintech platform. And uh, what the main thing that we consider doing in, in the help and of the implementation of the SFDR is to free up the time of asset managers to make it as easy for them as possible to work with the framework. So we try to reduce a lot of noise along the way. There's a, I'm sure we're all, everyone familiar with SFDR knows that it's, it's quite a lot to keep track of. First, you need to, you know, actually figure out the regulation and the legislation and the framework itself. And then you need to start working with data and you need to disclose uh, quite a lot of things. So what we do there is to help, you know, aggregate the data, uh, calculate KPIs, uh, offer different types of data insights through, you know, various lenses um, and also to generate these reports as well. Um, and we also allow investors to to monitor their portfolios according to to the framework, but also to whatever sustainability preferences they might have. So both in terms of, you know, just uh, just um, pre-contractual uh, information and exclusions and inclusions and focus investment strategy, but also uh, to monitor according to their definition of, uh, for example, sustainable investments or their definition of pies uh, that are important and relevant. Etc. Um, apart from that, we get the privilege to to converse a lot with the market, uh, which I'm extremely uh, grateful for. That we get to discuss uh, as if there are, you know, questions, uh, issues, uh, challenges, opportunities from our customers and uh, a lot uh, of uh, the market in general today as well. Thank you, Nora. SFDR introduced many notions such as. Um, sustainable investments or principal adverse impact indicators. Would you say these notions brought a change in the practices of financial market participants regarding their integration of sustainability risks, opportunities and impacts? I would say so. 
uh, <laughs> it, it varies depending on where you were as an actor before the introduction of these concepts and after, I would say. But regardless, I think it's changed. Uh, one thing that is quite clear is that there is definitely a change in the sense that it's more focused, the efforts of sustainability risks, opportunities, impacts today than they have been maybe historically. Uh, so in terms of more focused, it's it's very clear today, you know, when, when the regulator comes out with, an, with a table that says these are the principal adverse impacts uh, you should be looking at as a an asset manager or a fund manager, then, then you don't have much more choice than to actually start doing that. Uh, maybe you can go beyond, but that's they sort of help them set the minimum level by introducing these concepts. So, so in terms of that, I think the the sort of way you look at data, the way you look at risks and you know impacts and opportunities have been much more focused and now to the point uh, and clear, you know, clarified. So that's actually one might say that's been enforced by the regulation, or one might say that's been facilitated by the regulation. That's two different ways of looking at it. But another thing we've seen, I think, after the introduction of SSDR, mainly sustainable investments, is um, another the sort of other side of stepping away from the impacts and what what are we calling the good, uh, the the opposite to the adverse uh, things. So the the sustainable, and there I think we see a lot of more precaution after the introduction of uh, the SSDR. Um, so not being a more hesitant and more, you know, think twice before you call something green, think twice before you call something sustainable or ESG, you know, in terms of financial products. Uh, and that there needs to be a very, you know, robust and um, standardized methodology behind that to classify these instruments according to, to the regulation, uh, which is something we think is, is great. Uh, and it's as a part of these two concepts being introduced, uh, both sustainable investments and um, principal adverse impact, we see that it's sort of facilitated or yeah, in, increased or accelerated the integration of sustainability risks, impacts and opportunities in the normal processes, I would say. Excellent. Thank you, Nora, for sharing this insight. In a way, then, I presume you could conclude that overall, despite actually quite a lot of criticism towards SFDR, that this regulation increased, especially the transparency on the integration of sustainability risks, opportunities and impacts in the investment decisions. I would say so. I mean, to some extent, and that's obviously always difficult to measure, right? Like how successful has the implementation of this regulation been in terms of increased transparency, right? Because it is difficult also to explain all of these concepts and aspects in a way that makes it very easy for stakeholders or you know your audience to understand what you're how you're actually working with this. And, and that's where I think the main difficulty is that it's it's still it needs to be the framework needs to be flexible enough to support different types of investors working with this in different ways. But when you, with flexibility comes the whole difficulty of, you know, comparison between actor A, B and C. Um, but there's no denying that it's increased transparency to some extent, at least. We, we, <laughs> I refuse to believe that. Great, thank you. Now, passing on 
smoothly to the next question. Could you share with us some of the challenges you and your clients are facing in the implementation of SFDR? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, we've mainly uh, maybe touched upon a couple of them, uh, but not really deep, deep dives in them. Uh, so one main challenge for our customers today is the, the data, getting the data from their underlying assets and their, the instruments and actually being able to trust trust their data. And this goes sort of back to the, the whole disclosure side of them as well. If they can't trust the data they have, uh, then it's very, very scary for them to use that for their own disclosures, right? So, so, and the data have, I mean, it, it's more than trust getting enough coverage and, you know, getting enough quality assured information uh, is a very, very, very big challenge, especially for uh, some of our, our customers today that work in very niche markets or with a lot of smaller SMEs, you know, and et cetera. Apart from that, I would say that the workload is, is has been a challenge for the investors we've been talking a lot to. Uh, we work with a lot of smaller asset managers, not the really, really large institutes. And um, they normally have maybe one FTE dedicated to this, maybe not even that. Like it's it's not really that they have the, the capacity in-house to, to you know, require as much as uh, this regulation actually would need uh, as for attention. So you need to sort of complement with, you know, systems tech and uh, outside just help. Um, there's also the knowledge side of that, that, I mean, to understand the regulation, it takes a while. And today it's been difficult, uh, I think, in general for the market to understand uh, the regulation and versus what the market is doing with with this framework is sometimes different as well, uh, because it's developed into sort of a, uh, I'm sure we're going to get into this more later, but a labeling scheme or, you know, like a, a categorization of financial products rather than a transparency framework. And with that, I think sometimes when when the market takes the, the framework and does it into something else than it was intended to, it there will be some mismatches between the regulator's thoughts, original thoughts, and sort of how, how the framework is written and then how the market is actually doing it in practice. Uh, so that's one, one big thing as well. And I think the main question we get from or here, you know, and it doesn't really matter if you if they're asking us about data coverage on principal adverse impacts or how to define sustainable investments, but what is good enough? <laughs> There's a lot to wish for in terms of guidance of this regulation, I think. Thank you, Nora. You touched upon now, I would say, some of the changes that should be considered in the context of the future holistic review of uh, SFDR which in a way is already starting. So the European Commission is currently conducting a public consultation on the future review of SFGR. Even though we know that a regulatory legislative proposal won't be launched before 2025, of course, a lot of work on this is already starting to happen. What would you like to see coming out of the European Commission review in the future? That's a great question <laughs> and a, a difficult one as well, I think. It's because, um, to my view, this is uh, obviously something uh, we've heard a lot and we've seen that the market sort of is, uh, the, the revi their review is really, I think they're aware that the market is using it in, to some extent in 
the ways they're starting to ask the questions now, you know, and looking at uh, sort of um, restructuring the framework a little bit. Um, and uh, letting the market lead the way is um, great. And usually if they implement something like this, I would say like a, a labeling or an easy way to sort of cluster financial products. That's probably because they need that, uh, I would say. It hasn't come from nowhere. Uh, and now we've seen a similar regulation uh, implemented in the UK, and there's also uh, things coming from the SEC in the US. Uh, and I think uh, the commission has glanced a little bit on the UK as well to sort of see how how they're looking at implementing this. But with with this, I think what what is needed in the market today is clear criteria uh, for how to look at different financial products, right? Uh, if they would. Uh, decide or to propose to actually restructure the framework into more being it being more than just a disclosing framework or or you know a, a transparency regulation. Uh, I think the market is looking for clarity. Um, there's also the side I've heard a little bit of everything depending on who you're talking to. That some some of the, you know the participants or the actors in the market today welcome this like crazy. Some are very 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 hey uh, this regulation is so new. Uh, we've barely had the chance to know you know like we we had the first year of pie reporting last year. You know it's 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 been quite uh, a short time and we haven't really learned the way yet. Uh, so let's let's pull the brake a little bit and slow down and let us see how we can actually benefit from this regulation as it is after, you know, for a while before we start looking at potential changes. But in the end, I think from just a, if you take a step back and think about it, a, a review of the regulation is always probably useful, I would say. And uh, if if we, if we can get more clarity as a result of that, that would be great. That's on my wish list this year. Well, I think we are all hoping that the review of this regulation will be helpful to financial market participants as well as the regulators. And I think, as you mentioned, um, there is a need for greater clarity on certain definitions, even including the definition of sustainable investments, but especially to have either a definition of products with ESG characteristics or actually just consider transforming it into a yet a different uh, product category. And I think, as you mentioned, probably what we need is also kind of a move from the current framework, which is somehow stuck between a disclosure regulation, which legally it is, and between a standard uh, slash categorization system, labeling system. So probably we need to complete the move uh, into, you know, ensuring that there are clear categories which are fit for purpose. For instance, is this also something you have been reflecting on? And for instance, what kind of uh, product categories do you think should be there? I, we have been reflecting on it a little bit, but then uh, to to sort of the extent that it's far ahead. Uh, but if if you could wish, <laughs> uh, make you know wish for uh, for the future, I think uh, looking at the proposals that we've also seen from the European Commission, uh, it it does. I like the idea of keeping some of the you know SFDR concepts like Article Nine, Article Eight, do no significant harm, sustainable investments, sort of clustering keeping this because even though we need more clarity and the market is still sort of unsure, especially for sustainable investments, 
um, and you know all of all of that that entails. What is a positive contribution? What is significant harm? Uh, what is good governance? How do we set a normal value for that? Um, but I I still think that they they've from what we've seen they've done a lot of thinking you know and actually invested time and resources and you know they're they've dedicated themselves to this at least the ones who are working with it you know maybe managing in article eight or article nine products. Um, and and it would be nice if that work didn't have to go to waste, <laughs> I think. And also everything you they work with, you know, regarding the disclosures and sort of setting up this framework. So keeping that concept would be great, I, in my opinion. Then I think that the sort of idea of or the concept of having a a transition themed uh, category is obviously like it's it's something that is very relevant today and it will continue probably be even more relevant in the future um so so that's with a, a limited time spent on thinking of this uh, but that's probably what i would prefer great thank you nora now let's maybe turn back into a little bit more i would say the tools and methodologies that you help your clients develop in, in order to enable them to properly monitor the sustainability risks and measure them as well as um, the potential adverse impacts. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So the tools uh, we we give, and I would say the the if you think about it, data is the sort of tool to monitor. That's what you need here, and that's what you need to monitor. And then you need to be able to aggregate and uh, you know present this in a way that's easy to comprehend. Because we all know that financial products, you're looking at exposures. You have <laughs> there's a lot of complexity, a lot of data points, and they're also you know, they grow with uh, the number of in instruments that you have in your portfolio. Um, so one thing that we allow to do is to select a number of criteria, for example. Uh, so you can select something regarding tax and paying employees if you want to look at uh, good governance, maybe, for example. And, and uh, looking at doing no significant harm, we have the principal adverse impacts sort of aggregated per portfolio level as well. But also looking at SDG contributions, green revenue streams, etc., uh, together with a lot of ESG data as well. Um, so, so our main tool to monitor this under SFDR, I would say, is presenting these in a pie view um, and also exporting them into the template. But also being able to set sort of a flexible, multi-parameter screening criteria for what that is intended for sustainable investments. So basically a combination of as many data points as you like that you can set as thresholds, uh, which can be compared to a benchmark or an index or uh, you name it. And then do this per company, you know, per instrument in your universe or in your portfolio, uh, which then just then you get a final number and also insights into uh, where they've passed and where they've failed, you know, uh, your own criteria as a user. Great, thank you. We're actually eagerly awaiting a publication from the European supervisory authorities of the revised regulatory technical standards, uh, the revisions on which they have been publicly consulting earlier this year. Do you have any particular expectations with regards to that? And to what extent do you think it is really important to provide greater clarity on how financial market participants should measure 
and then consider appropriately the principal adverse impact indicators. And, and also, do you think some of those indicators should absolutely be revised in order to make it more practical for investments? Good question. I do think uh, this uh, new consultation and, um, you know, sort of re restructuring the pie framework a little bit uh, is good uh, holistically. I mean, I think aligning it with uh, the ESRS, uh, we've seen a lot that is really, really helpful <laughs> because it's going to be difficult if if the companies are meant to report something else than, you know, the, the investors are. Uh, so so for, from that aspect, I think it's great. It's also being a little bit, because if you think about it, really, the original pie, you know, statement and framework that was developed quite long ago. Uh, and things have happened in the world since then. They're looking now at, for example, moving more towards uh, UN uh, human rights uh, for business and human rights or guiding principles, sorry. Uh, for business and human rights uh, instead of looking at the UN Global Compact and things like that, uh, which I think is is good. And the sort of uh, harmonization across frameworks and regulations is what the EU is striving for, right? The, the, the CSRD, the taxonomy, the SFDR, MIFID II, they're all very linked. Uh, and in order to, to continue to work they need to also be harmonized. So aligning these two frameworks, I think I'm 100% for, and I think uh, most of the market would uh, agree to that as well. The other aspect you mentioned is, you know, just clarifying how principal adverse impacts should be calculated. Uh, this might seem, uh, you know, very minor and trivial, but we've spent so much time trying to sort of crack the code on how should we calculate this? How should we, like, what kind of approach should we apply to emissions to water? Same as carbon footprint. It, there's, <laughs> and it's just work that takes time. And uh, it might, if you make the wrong assumption, you know, uh, and sort of deviate from the market, then I think uh, that's just... Yeah, blocks comparison between the disclosures. So uh, actually looking at, you know, having a, a, a formula and a definition for each pie, uh, like we've seen in this consultation, is uh, really good as well, uh, I think, and really useful. Thank you, Nora. As long as we're talking about principal adverse impact indicators, let's maybe touch upon one more aspect. So in the context of the future holistic review of uh, SFDR framework, uh, there has been quite a bit of a debate uh, on uh, whether it is useful to retain the principal adverse impacts both at the entity level and then also at the product level. And uh, honestly, I've heard, you know, such a variety of views already. It's true that I think some of the financial market participants would prefer to keep it only at the product level, which to quite an extent it makes sense. However, some have been pointing out that, you know, especially disclosure of the due diligence policies are of paramount importance at the entity level. And well, I've heard even in some opinions that keeping such disclosures at the entity level to some extent can also bring greater clarity, even for financial market participants themselves, you know, looking at you know, all of their kind of portfolios, to what extent there may or may not be somewhere significant harm that they need to mitigate. What are your views on that? How to kind of strike the right balance in order to ensure that, you know, this framework is useful both for the retail investors, supervisors, and at the same time, and 
financial market practitioners. And at the same time, that is also practical and not overly burdensome. Yeah, I recognize that as well. There's a lot of uh, different, you know, views on sort of the scope on how to look at the impacts because you do often also consider them on product level, right? And they can vary between depending on if you pro your financial product might have a specific focus, then you might have a select number of pies for, you know, industries or it, it can vary a lot. Um, but I like what you, what there's one thing you mentioned on for example, do no significant harm and due diligence policies that that sort of is on an organizational level. If you have a policy for this, it's it should probably entail all your investments and not just your articulator 9-1 or uh, things like that. And I think in the end, it's it's everything needs to, uh, <laughs> it's not just the article, the, or the, the top performing funds or financial products that need to uh, decrease their principal adverse impacts because you know that's it's all negative things in that table uh, everyone needs to do it not just the you know the the top of mind and the ESG label funds they need to increase their additionality and they're doing good but everyone needs to stop doing harm in my opinion uh, so so I think and also just for ease to me the entity level sort of high disclosure is more holistic that's how companies do it that's how you know um, banks or will be required to do it maybe for simplicity it would be good to keep it like that and then the product level sort of looking at pies could be an add-on uh, in my opinion rather than uh, a standard to me it makes more sense like that but maybe that's uh, from a long history of uh, just looking in annual reports and <laughs> sort of how how we're used to seeing this disclosure overall and then I think there's another side that could actually argue for the opposite so the product level one which is that the data, the sort of data need of principal adverse impacts from investors, you normally comes from another investor, right? That has uh, a a position in your product. It's rare to see that you know a a retail customer would be like, I want to know exactly what the emissions to water was in 2021 for this this fund, because <laughs> uh, it's very difficult to assess now uh, at the moment. But there is this, if, if, if you have institutional investors, you will, they will need your data to calculate their own principal adverse impact. So there's this sort of escalations. And then it's obviously useful to have that per, per product level. Uh, for example, as it is in the EET, then we see that they can actually get this data uh, in machine readable format on product level. So, so there's two different sides, I think. One is sort of the data needs that are driven by the regulation and one is sort of how will we make our product and our uh, organization a little bit better. Thank you. Regarding retail investors, I mean, I, I think you might be wrong that maybe they are not necessarily inquiring about very particular disclosures like, okay, what is the water usage, uh, et etc. et cetera. However, actually, we are hearing and we've seen some studies targeted at uh, understanding better the preferences of retail investors that actually demonstrate that there is an increasing number of uh, financial services consumers that really do care about sustainability. So I think maybe the difference here is that they don't necessarily want to have information about very specific technical metrics. However, they want to know overall how sustainable this financial product is, or at least 
does it prevent significant harm, right? So I, I think, and, you know, as you touch upon, I mean, in a way, all those actually disclosures and metrics are important components of assessing the level of greenness or, well, sustainability, considering both environmental and social aspects of the investment product. Would, would you agree with that? I, I do agree 100%. And I think in general, we also speak to a lot of uh, wealth managers, so advisors who obviously work directly with, with they got an ear <laughs> on the uh, towards the private markets and the retail uh, customers. And also now we have the MIFID 2 questionnaire, you know, that they actually need to, to start um, collecting this information about the pre- preferences. Uh, and I think absolutely that most of the the, the customers want to uh, invest sustainably. That, there's no doubt about that, especially, you know, when the generation shifts. We've heard that uh, <laughs> normally, typically, the, the Method 2 questionnaire is very, there's a very high percentages of, you know, uh, sustainability preferences of younger generations, apparently, which is, I think is great. Um, but the difficulty of the the pie statement in this sort of context is that it's very difficult to assess based on only this information. What is the sustainability profile? It feeds into the final output, like you mentioned, and I agree 100% that it's absolutely useful. But it's very, today, I think, sort of the, the data literacy, uh, even in the, the capital markets, is not perfect. So uh, expecting the retail investors to understand this, I think, would be uh, a little bit too ambitious. Although the intent and the ambition and, you know, the the asking questions, just asking questions about sustainability in financial products I've seen have grown a lot recently. And you, they, that's going to spread to, you know, pension funds and on these platforms now that are actually adding on further information. Every time I log in here in Sweden, I see something new on sustainability into, you know, <laughs> brokerages and things like that. So there is definitely a, a will and a, an ask for this from retail investors. Thank you. And what do you think would need to be changed in order to make it more retail investor friendly? So I think in the the ESMA consultation, uh, this dashboard, for example, that they've uh, introduced to uh, to make these documents easier to understand for readers, uh, that's definitely a first step, um, in my opinion. So making this sort of um, home screen and looking at you know the, the the highlights because I think it's it's generally rare to see a a big share of retail investors going in and reading these documents, you know, uh, from start to end. Um, so, so that's great. And then in terms of the pies, the pies being more useful to end investor, I think that's another sort of question because when I see 80% sustainable, that that maybe is a little bit more clear and straightforward to me than what the carbon footprint of 400. Because that doesn't really, if you don't put, you know, data in a context, impact data, then it's difficult to assess. So maybe, maybe that will come just with time with these documents becoming more mainstream. Um, or maybe you need to add sort of a, I don't know, a benchmark in the, or something to create a sort of framework to hold on to that what is, you know, tolerable, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable when it comes to doing harm. So basically, maybe 
creating thresholds or as you mentioned you know be able to benchmark it against something right that would be if i i can ask i would that would be great and i think a lot of the market would find that quite nice to sort of have something to hold on to as well Yes, I think we are often, you know, kind of stuck in this bizarre loop where on one hand, I think in terms of implementation, a lot of financial market participants, they are keen to have more clarity and more precision. On the other hand, you know, I think sometimes people are uh, are asking, you know, for more flexibility, especially when the regulation is created. Uh, and, and then it creates some sort of bizarre clash. And, you know, in, in a way, uh, sometimes I fear for the EU policymakers and regulators because, you know, no matter how hard they try to to make everybody happy uh, you know at the end of the day there will be always someone complaining right but uh, anyway okay let, let's hope for the best you know uh, for the upcoming rts as well as for the future um, holistic review now if we are already speaking about some of the technical details i'd like to also probe your views on what the future categories that are part of SFGR, what kind of criteria could you consider for them? Because I think there has been a lot of debate, right? That uh, if you have the product investment product categories, you also need to have sufficiently robust criteria that underpins them. So what in your view would be the best criteria for sustainable investments, then, you know, a sort of improved equivalent of products with ESG characteristics and the transition category? This is uh, an interesting question, and there's obviously you can make the list very long. And I, I, I find it funny what you mentioned about the the sort of two sides of the market. One being regulators, as much as like <laughs> please make everything you know very black and white so it's easy to follow. And then it's like, don't regulate us. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, either you need to do a hundred percent, maybe add thresholds and specific guidance on how to implement this. I think adding this will be, it will be diff very difficult to make everyone happy <laughs> when looking at this, uh, because we, this is to a large extent actually already implemented to, in some ways, uh, form from um, European investors who actually use this concept today. And they, I, I think they'll be reluctant to change, uh, even though they'll be happy to get clarifications and guidance. Maybe they've found a model that's working for them. Uh, what we've heard, which one thing that I really like is to when assess uh, harm, uh, for example, using the pies, but also using, you know, it's very difficult to, you're always there in the conundrum to how do I assess a little Swedish tech company with a, I don't know, Brazilian mining company or an agri, like different sizes, different industries. Um, so, so using sort of adjusting to um, intensity measures, uh, but also one thing that we've seen a lot and do as well is to compare. We only benchmark for doing no significant harm against their own industry, so against their peers. So that when you assess, for example, greenhouse gas emissions or you know carbon footprint, you you compare apples and apples and not apples and pears. And uh, so that's something we'd like to see more. Partly more guidance on sort of which level of <laughs> on how to approach this, uh, but also on, on how to apply these criteria, especially and to account for the various values you will see. Because before you have sort of the you normalize the data, it's very difficult to find the good threshold, in my opinion. And then um, the most question or the biggest question I would say that we get and uh, I'm <laughs> considering every now and then as well is what is significant harm 
what makes it significant. Uh, so go, going back here again to what we talked about the pies, where it goes from, you know, a tolerable, because we know that all the pies are harmful, right? They're adverse impact. But when do they go from harmful to being significantly harmful? Uh, and that that is something that we've thought a lot about. So looking at, you know, what do you need to, uh, how bad do you need to be to be classified as harmful would be very, very difficult. <laughs> and th that would be great, I think, to have some further guidance on. Well, I think you're touching upon, indeed, a very important and sensitive point at the same time. I think to some extent, the existing EU taxonomy of uh, environmentally sustainable economic activities that already has do no significant harm criteria for quite a lot of economic activities. I think to quite a degree can be also helpful in there. I, I wonder whether you also agree with that. But 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 of course, you know, there has been also quite a lot of discussions on to what extent it would be useful to use the taxonomy of do no well the do no significant harm criteria for the purpose of SFDR and, you know, discussions that the taxonomy is economic activity level. You know, here, the do no significant harm in SFDR is rather investing company level, which, of course, creates certain challenges as well. Of course, some people also say that the taxonomy do no significant harm criteria are quite detailed. However, I think that, you know, somehow is related to what you mentioned, right? That if, if you really want to make it scientific, and sufficiently comparable across the industries in a way there is no way of fully avoiding, you know, the nitty-gritty and the related complexity. So what are your views on that? Yeah, I think it's it's useful to look at the taxonomy and it's both good but also a little bit unfortunate. I think that they've overlapped these concepts uh, across two frameworks that aren't meant to be used the same way. Uh, <laughs> And also that the underlying definitions shouldn't be the same because they've made quite clear that to look at sustain, um, do no significant harm under SFDR, they need to use the PIES. Uh, so, so it's fair enough. But then, then I think another sort of challenge, you can still look at the taxonomy and we've, a lot of our users actually do that. We've seen it's very common because it feels, you know, safe for them. Uh, way safer than looking at a, a select number of pies, the mandatory ones, and maybe some optional, and then trying to figure out what's a good threshold for me to apply to this data points. I think the industry finds that very scary, and uh, yeah, with the lack of guidance, they they would rather look at something that is you know the EU approved stamp up uh, on. Um, however, this sort of um, the do not significant harm within the taxonomy is it has the same limitations of everything in the taxonomy, I think, which is that it doesn't apply to more than I don't know how many sectors at the moment, but it is a significantly or fairly small part of the economic activities in the world today. So you might still run into, you know, uh, what should I apply to this? This is not defined in the taxonomy. And then you still need to um, need to fall back on your own definition at some point, uh, which is why I think sustainable investments and you know everything that entails entails underneath is it is really useful because we need another we need this flexibility in my opinion in the <laughs> framework today before until the taxonomy is a very complete and you know holistic and wide setting framework. Then I think. Um, it's good, but 
it's still gonna be sort of a very very tricky road to navigate for the market and in terms of good enough going back to this again the constant question what is good enough uh because there's there's also always going to be a i don't want to call it conflict of interest but obviously you want you want a methodology that will give you as high a percentage of sustainable investments as possible that you can feel comfortable with is not greenwashing that's what they're looking for like that's the only thing the market wants today we, we don't want to greenwash we want to be transparent but we also want to invest sustainably <laughs> so this whole this is the whole conundrum today and uh, i think getting as much inspiration from the other frameworks such as the taxonomy and you know you can look at for example the, the draft report of the social taxonomy as well for social activities but in the end they're going to have to make the decision uh, of how to screen and how to classify these instruments uh, which is they're going to get to that at some point anyways great thank you maybe just very briefly touching upon then the criteria that could be considered as substantial contribution i mean for for the purpose of sfdr i mean because right now as you know for sustainable investment products i mean you know it does say that the product has to contribute to an environmental or social objective in addition not to doing any significant harm and and have you know good corporate governance uh i would say follow good corporate governance principles as well. So speaking of that, and indeed, you know, for instance, one option would be to say like, okay, maybe a certain percentage of the taxonomy alignment, but we all know, you know, what are the challenges with that? And you also touched upon that, that uh, EU taxonomy is still being developed and probably needs time to be also well implemented and, you know, I would say well received by the markets. So what in your view could be some criteria that would then allow this, you know, flexibility, you know, and an alternative to using EU taxonomy as a kind of, I would say here, measure or benchmark of contributing towards environmental or social objectives. What do you think could be some alternatives to ensure that then there is some robust criteria, but at the same time, allowing enough flexibility? Great question. We, we didn't even get to positive contributions until now, and that's the tricky part as well. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of different options. Unfortunately, today, uh, currently, there's not a lot of structured data uh, in terms of this. We have, you know, some indications of uh, SDG alignment of, of that you've started looking now uh, at in terms of revenue streams of companies because it is one one important thing to distinguish is that when you look at the positive contribution it says in the regulation that it's on the economic activity level uh, and not on so as opposed to looking at do no significant harm or good governance you don't need to look at the whole company 100% of their operations need to contribute to you know i don't know renewable energy for example it could be a smaller share of that. So what we've seen, which I think is a good approach, is looking, you know, into annual reports and general operations. The the issue here is it's difficult to to assess without this data being reported directly because it's you rarely get the data from the companies in that sense that X percent like a revenue breakdown and the classification of you know how this sort of if this is green or social etc. So I think for the positive contribution sort of assessment, there's a lot of uh, assumptions 
uh, line behind that of you know reading between the lines, knowing the company, knowing their operations, etc. Um, but this is also, I think, where we've seen the most conservative approaches from the market, which I think is really good uh, <laughs> because when there's not, when you lack the data and you need to make these assumptions yourself, then you you need to apply a very conservative and stringent approach. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a better answer than that. Then you know, looking at activities rather than uh, the company itself, but also trying to find out what kind of uh, economic activities are they involved in. And I think the most classic ones are renewable energy. You know, looking at sort of transitioning this. Uh, it could be energy storage. That's uh, quite interesting for me, at least. Uh, and then sort of making the the assumption that there is a positive contribution. Thank you. And finally, regarding transition investments, what do you think appropriate criteria or metrics could be? That's a really interesting topic. I think transition in general is uh, so so interesting. And to to me, it's very necessary. Uh, But then I think, for example, if you're looking at a scenario where you're looking at assessing, you know, doing no significant harm and the good governance, on a company level and you have a a company involved in fossil fuels they need to transition right so it would be great if you can find a way to to make this happen um in order for that i mean i'm gonna get to positive contribution for uh, soon but they need to qualify for the do significant harm and the good governance which might be the tricky part when you look at this sort of um, i don't know case or scenario um, when you then get to the positive contribution of this, I think it's it's super important to uh, to have some sort of you know measurable metric of have we succeeded in this transition, and uh, not just the promise of you know we're installing X and Y uh, or we're we're starting you know a micro project for hydrogen uh, green hydrogen. So actually a demanding or sort of there, I think if you're an investor, you can engage a little bit more with the the investing company or the prospect. And ask, you know, what is the sort of expected outcome? And that could be in avoided emissions or, you know, there's there's also a lot of debate on how to measure these things going forward. But looking at it on a very deeper level, I think, to make sure that it's, you know, robust and serious. And it's I wouldn't say that the most important thing to remember is also that it's scalable and not just a, you know, very single sort of isolated offhand project, but that is a part of their whole transition as a company, I would say, because that's that's what we need, not, you know, isolated side projects. We need to work for a general transition. Thank you. And do you think in this context it's worthwhile to distinguish between the company impact and the investor impact? The company impact meaning basically just trying to focus on how the company is transitioning towards sustainability you know, kind of considering that here, I would say the contribution of the investor is basically to provide the capital. Although, of course, we could then debate, you know, a kind of a fresh capital versus, you know, providing, I would say, buying shares on secondary markets. And and yeah, and the investor impact, meaning, you know, how it is the investor that is actually actively contributing, right? They're providing the additionality either through the fresh capital or, for instance, through stewardship and engagement, et cetera, et cetera. I think we need to distinguish between both of them. And in general, I think that in the end, it's it's the company that needs to do the transition, right? They need to put in the work 
they need investors in order to do this as well. So they're let's give them some praise as well. And I think from what we've heard, I mean, there's there's a great, great, great will for investors to to allocate the capital and, you know, sort of help this going forward. But until just recently, there's been a shortage of, you know, uh, eligible projects or eligible sort of uh, <laughs> ways or companies or projects or whatever it might be to put this capital in. Um, but but in the end, I think it's uh, it's it should be a combined uh, sort of effort where the investors need to to have this information, they need to to have this you know knowledge and uh, sort of insight to to be able to to facilitate the transition. But it's the, the it's the companies that's going to have to do the legwork. Great. Well, thank you so much, Nora, for joining us today and for this insightful conversation. Thank you.